Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Welcome back to another episode of America's 360. Hello, I'm John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, the Our Ocean 2023 conference took place earlier this month in Panama. It brought together representatives from government, industry, science, and civil society with the shared goal of creating sustainable solutions to meet the challenges of ocean conservation. The Wilson Center's Latin American program participated in the conference, hosting a panel of high-ranking naval officers from multiple countries for a discussion of how to combat illegal fishing. They also hosted a pre-conference event in D.C. that featured comments from Special Presidential Envoy for Climate Change, John Kerry. Today, our panel will explore how the nations of the Western Hemisphere can continue to improve ocean conservation efforts. So please welcome back to the program, Wilson Center Distinguished Fellow, Cindy Arnson. Hi, John. Hey, Cindy. Latin American Program Director, Benjamin Gadan. Greetings, John. Hello, Benjamin. Mexico Institute Director, Andrew Rudman. John. Hey, Andrew. And finally, last but not least, Canada Institute Director, Christopher Sands. Hello, bonjour, John. Christopher, hello. How are you? So, uh, Benjamin, let's begin with a little plug for the stuff that you've done already on this topic, because I will let our listeners know that if they come to WilsonCenter.org and they search past events, they can find uh, a both strengthening U.S. cooperation on marine protection in Latin America and our Ocean Countdown, Panama 2023, the Great Blue Connection. Tell us about those those gatherings, Benjamin. Sure. Thanks for the question, John. We have been working closely with the U.S. Department of State, with the Pentagon, to support a really extraordinary attempt at marine protection in the eastern tropical Pacific. These are the biodiverse waters off the coast of Ecuador, including by the Galapagos Islands, Colombia, Costa Rica, and Panama. This is a transnational marine protected area. It's large, it's complex, logistically and diplomatically. And fortunately, the United States and the Wilson Center have been stepping up, along with a lot of really big civil society organizations, to show that this can be a model for marine protection. Thanks. Thanks. And again, to our listeners, WilsonCenter.org, you could find those terrific events. Let's shift gears and, and look at the conference specifically. And as a framing device, you know, and I was doing my homework for this, there are, the numbers are just staggering. We, you, we can't begin to overestimate the significance of the water planet's oceans and what it means to life on the planet. And yet we kind of do take it for granted sometimes. But here's, here are two numbers that just absolutely pop. 90% of the habitable space on planet Earth is the ocean, or the oceans, plural, are the oceans. And those oceans contain, they're home to over 250,000 known species. So we're talking about something that dwarfs humankind in, in many ways. Uh, let's start with sort of the, the, the question that must be asked of all gatherings, uh, international gatherings, when they conclude of... Was it a success? Uh, let's just go in the order of introduction and get your thoughts, initial thoughts, and then we'll dive into some of the specifics. Uh, Cindy, could we begin with you? Sure. Well, I think that um, the Oceans Conference was a success in that um, nations from not just Latin America and the Caribbean, but around the world 
came together um, and agreed to um, a, a proposal on ocean protection. Um, and as you say, when you look at the the map of the world, you see how many continents um, are just surrounded by water and how essential um, the oceans are to the populations in Latin America and the Caribbean. It's fully 27% of the population that lives in those coastal areas. Um, Mesoamerica, which is considered, you know, Mexico, Central America, has the second largest barrier reef in the world. We think of the Great Barrier Reef. We don't typically think of Latin America and the Caribbean as a as the location of one of these important reefs. So coming together um, as leaders of countries, um, but also uh, private sector foundations and NGOs, um, Benjamin mentioned civil society, um, the U.S. government, um, people coming together and establishing these principles um, is an enormous step forward. But as we know with any treaty, um, it depends then on how people are going to implement it. And there's yeah. a lot of work that needs to be done, a lot of resources that need to be committed to making this kind of treaty a reality. But the good news is that in our in our region, in Latin America and the Caribbean, there are all, already a lot of steps being taken um, in the um, Eastern Tropical uh, Marine Corridor, known by its acronym CIMAR in Spanish. Um, there are concrete steps that are being taken by the governments of Ecuador and Colombia and Panama and, and Costa Rica to make that large protected area um, a reality and to police it and to keep people out and keep people away from doing things that would damage um, the marine ecosystems. Thanks, Cindy. Benjamin, your initial thoughts on, on the question of success of the conference? Yeah, I think globally, the conference was fantastic. I think there were almost 340 commitments or so, $20 billion that would be dedicated to protecting the ocean. What I really enjoyed was Latin America's leadership in this area, um, not only because you know we focus on Latin America, but because it is some of the most biodiverse ocean in the world. And so it's critically important that these governments take this seriously. The host Panama not only organized this conference, but announced the expansion of its Banco Volcan Marine Protected Area in the Caribbean. It has deep sea mountain ranges, extraordinary biodiversity. The expansion of that area means Panama is now protecting more than 50% of its exclusive economic zone of the portions of ocean that are considered under its territorial authority, which I think is setting a really powerful example for other countries in the region. And it is hardly the only example of a Latin American government taking marine protection really seriously right now, which I think you know is, is delightful and important for the global efforts. Thanks, Benjamin. And you mentioned these numbers, uh, 341 separate commitments made at the conference worth about $20 billion, as you said, 77 announcements and $6 billion in commitments alone from the United States. Andrew, your, your initial thoughts. Um, you know, I, I think, John, echoing what, what Cindy said, I, I think it's really important that, that all these countries and groups came together. I mean, and it's sort of a cliche, but you have to recognize the problem before you can solve it, I think is important. And I think it just underscores this, like so many other topics that we talk about on this podcast, it's almost always a topic or an issue that has to be addressed multilaterally. These are right. The, the oceans obviously don't know borders. And, and I think it's really important that, that as, as Cindy and Benjamin have said, that people have come together. And, and now the question, I think the role for all of us is to kind of hold people's feet to the fire, make sure that they deliver on those commitments. Yeah, and Andrew, as you say, it's not just territorial waters. It's those so-called, the technical term, what areas beyond national jurisdiction, is that the terminology that is used? 
The Deep Sea. The Deep Sea. Okay. Uh, Chris Sands, your thoughts? Uh, I thought it was a really useful conference from the perspective of bringing the Canadians in. Um, in the last couple of years, the Trudeau government's brought in a number of important pieces of legislation that were designed to protect Canadian uh, ocean frontage. And it's a little um, it's a little bit simplistic, but the Canadian Constitution puts oceans and even coasts and ports fully under the federal authority. So they're very coherent when they when they approach this. And they've been very ambitious trying to protect marine wildlife. And in particular, just uh, last year passed a major amendment to their governing legislation for offshore oil platforms, a particular issue around Newfoundland and the Hibernia uh, oil field, which is right off uh, of Newfoundland. That said, although they've been very good about their own waters, this conference was really where you started to see the Canadians joining a broader coalition that includes many other countries. And, uh, you know, nothing wrong with taking care of your own waters, but getting involved, for example, in the America's Protection of the Ocean Coalition, which has been led by uh, Gabriel Boric, uh, as well as Justin Trudeau, I think puts Canada's expertise, its science, its funding uh, in the same sort of package of trying to protect hemispheric waters. And so bringing the Canadians into the mainstream of what's been going on recently, I thought was one of the big gains from this particular, uh, for this particular conference. Well, you know, the term ocean conservation, we're using that to, to uh, be an umbrella term for a number of individual issues that need to be addressed among those climate, marine protected areas, security, sustainable fisheries, pollution, so-called blue economies. I wonder your thoughts on, you know, sort of triage this. What are the areas of most immediate concern where uh, the action is more urgent or the need for action is more urgent? I, I can start with that, um, John. There are a couple of things that are um, that need to be addressed in Latin America, um, in the United States, quite frankly. And uh, two of the biggest threats to these marine ecosystems from domestic sources um, have to do with runoff from agricultural uh, use of pesticides. And the other is plastics pollution, which is a mm. global problem, but you know, in areas where there are inadequate trash collection systems and, and virtually no recycling, a lot of this ends up in, in waterways. Um, but in terms of external threats, the biggest one that is a threat to the sustainability, frankly, of fish stocks is the um, overfishing, the illegal, unreported uh, fishing. Um, it's easy to blame China. China is a major actor in this, um, in this realm where fleets of dozens of ships sit just outside the exclusive economic zone of a number of countries and have these huge nets and just catch anything. Um, and don't throw back what they don't need. A lot of things are unnecessarily caught and, and killed. Sharks are uh, have their fins cut off and then the sharks are thrown back. I mean, it's a, um, it's a terrible, terrible problem. And countries don't have the resources to keep those ships out. So internationally, getting the Chinese and other um, countries that have a demand for the fish resources that Latin America has, you know, have to come together and recognize that this is a, a joint and global problem. Well, John, maybe I can jump in because um, when you think about marine protection and, and Mexico, what always comes up is the vaquita, the 
smallest marine mammal, a, a small porpoise. And, and what Cindy what Cindy described is is exactly the issue that the vaquita get caught up in the nets. Uh, people looking for totoaba, uh, the bladders of which sell for up to twenty thousand dollars in China. So there is, you know, there there is clearly an economic incentive to catch. And again, it's not a goal of catching the vaquita, but it's not not ensuring that if they get caught or either making sure they don't get caught in the nets or releasing them when they do. So, so I think Cindy's right. That's a, a major concern for Mexico and more broadly. Benjamin. I think Cindy's right. I think there's a huge international role to be played here. It's the right moment to do it. And that's why I think we have this sense of urgency. You have a constellation of leaders in Latin America deeply dedicated to marine protection, but utterly lacking in kind of the diplomatic muscle, the naval and Coast Guard resources necessary to carry out marine protection. And so you just sort of tick down the list. I mean, you can create an MPA, but can you really confront these massive Chinese deep sea fishing fleets without the naval resources, the surveillance, the radar, the sonar, the drones, probably not. And, and so there, it's so encouraging that, you know, the Wilson Center has been able to work with the Pentagon on these issues. The same thing is true diplomatically. You have Chile and Argentina stepping up to promote marine protection of the Southern Ocean, but it's, it's thwarted by China and Russia and needs a lot of diplomatic muscle from other countries. So I think if you sort of look across the board, you know, there are many aspects of this that cannot be accomplished only by these governments in Latin America, let alone the climate related impacts like ocean acidification that obviously require an international response. Yeah, the, the point you make about the, the relative capacity of each of the nations involved. Uh, also, this conference was not just governments or the military. It also included the private sector. Are, are Is there anyone that you could point to that is providing leadership from the private sector? Are there any particular industries that are working hand in hand with governments to address some of these challenges? I mean, Panama is an interesting place to hold this conference because it's the home, of course, of the Panama Canal. And so there was a lot of discussion of, of shipping and how it can reduce its carbon impacts and various other ways that the global shipping industry can become more green. Um, I think not just the private sector, but you know, organizations like the Bezos Earth Fund, the Global Fishing Watch, and the Ocean Conservancy. There was this array of NGOs present at that conference, making extraordinarily generous contributions to marine protection in the West. Hemisphere. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's hard to get nations to agree on all kinds of things. And uh, are there particular countries you can point to regionally who are leading the way and others who may be lagging behind? Uh, well, what is what, what can you tell us about that? I'll note, John, that Panama was not the first country in the Americas to host the Our Ocean Conference. This is only the eighth, and two of them have taken place in the Americas. Um, three, if you count the United States as the inaugural host, Chile hosted the Our Ocean Conference in 2016 and has consistently been a leader on marine protection. Anyone who knows its geography knows it is quite a bit of coast. And it has taken advantage of that opportunity to, to do quite a bit of marine protection. And as I mentioned earlier, also trying to lead the way in protecting the Southern Ocean, along with Argentina and other countries that have a presence in Antarctica. Cindy, at the, at the outset, you mentioned that there's still a lot of work to be done, not to mention just ratification of agreements, which could take some time. But maybe we could hear if you would put your heads together on what are the next steps? What are these things? Where, what is, how would we define this work that remains to be done? Well, I think touching on, on something that, that Benjamin was emphasizing, enforcement, I think, is the biggest challenge um, for marine protection, um, not only from the international threats, but also from um, domestic fishing industries that um, 
to a large extent in countries like Ecuador have been brought in and brought along and have agreed, um, you know, uh, because the sustainability of their industry depends on um, having these kinds of um, these kinds of protections in place. But the I think the biggest part is having um, the capacity uh, domestically to police these waters and to confront people and and boats and and um, uh, other you know sea vessels that are in violation of the of the protected area limits um, and to continue the coordination among the countries. I mean, let's remember. I mean, this is a very very difficult time economically as well as politically for most Latin American and Caribbean countries. There's still the drag from COVID. The you know the huge spikes in in food and energy prices, high inflation, high interest rates that make you know uh, debt more expensive to repay. I mean these are countries that are facing a host of problems that don't have a lot of their own resources right now to divert from sort of the social and economic needs of their own populations to something that may seem like you know an environmentalist uh, luxury. Um, uh-huh. In terms of ocean protection, but the I guess the good news is that um, there are so many groups and um, industries for whom sustainability is a key aspect of their vision into the future, and and without it, they're going to go out of business. But I I would say having the um, the the patrolling, the naval, the coast guard, the military capacity um, to protect the protected areas is the biggest challenge. You know, Cindy, your answer suggests that there's not a lot of disagreement on what needs to be done. There just are different levels of capacity in actually doing it. Chris Sands. The thing I wanted to jump in on, John, is that, you know, it wasn't that long ago, 1995, when Canada made the decision, a very difficult decision, that it was going to shut down its cod, cod fishery in the Atlantic. Something goes back to the 1500s. And it was doing so not because of the Canadian fishermen, but because of the fishermen from Spain, France, and Portugal, who came every year, but with new sort of factory fishing trawlers, were just taking way more fish than was sustainable for the population. At that point, Canada decided it had to put this moratorium on, and it felt very much on its own in terms of defending it. And in 1995, as I mentioned, we saw the weird situation of a Canadian fisheries protection boat uh, firing live fire on a Spanish trawler to try to shoo them out of Canadian waters. And I think at the time, a lot of people were saying, well, how does it come to this? Why are we shooting at you know, the Spaniards who are NATO allies and just a bunch of fishermen trying to make a living? But it started a conversation with the Spanish to say, you know, let's do this together. You know, we don't want your fishermen to be broken out of work. We don't want to be shooting at anybody. Can we do this jointly? And so it was a watershed moment for Canada, no pun intended, where they realized that the best way to do oceans and marine wildlife protection is jointly not uh, trying to go it alone and and feeling sometimes undermatched uh, in terms of the number of ships in the Canadian Navy and fisheries patrol vessels that it has available. So what came out of the the Panama conference, I think, was a much broader consensus that we are in this together in the Western Hemisphere. And I think even for countries with relatively limited uh, naval capacity or Coast Guard capacity, that sense of solidarity and watching each other's backs and trying to work towards new standards, I think has a powerful uh, signaling effect and will help a lot of countries feel that they can do this. Andrew Rudman. Thanks, Chow. Just sort of, uh, I guess, picking up on, on something 
things that both Chris and, and Cindy said, I think in terms of making sure that that people understand, you know, that you sort of build a consensus and, and don't create a situation, which I think you're seeing play out a little bit in the Sea of Cortez in Mexico, where it becomes the business or the, you know, the fishermen against the environmentalists. And, and we see that in the U.S. as well. I mean, one, one really concrete example from my home state where I think it's, uh, it's the Sierra Club has declared that, that Maine lobster is not sustainable and not being, not being obtained appropriately. And that has a huge negative impact on, on consumption. So I think it, it just winds up being really important that, you know, kind of people understand all the perspectives and, and as has been said, work, work together. Uh, because otherwise, you you spend a lot of time with one group fighting against the other. Benjamin, I want to circle back to you. You had something else to add about the involvement of the U.S. military in uh, environmental protection. Yeah, I mean, my colleagues are absolutely right. None of the goodwill being displayed by governments around the world means anything at all unless you can actually protect the biodiversity in these marine protected areas. And that's why it's really been so encouraging to see the United States military take this seriously and include it among its priorities. You mentioned an event we hosted in Panama on the margins of this conference. We had some of the usual suspects there. We were thrilled that Sylvia Earle, her deepness, you know, the legendary protector of, of oceans was there. But the Secretary of the U.S. Navy was there too, uh, much less expected. The head of naval intelligence, the commander of the Colombian Navy, and all of them to a commander, to a colonel, um, and to an admiral, we're recognizing this as a critical priority for, you know, coastal ecosystems, for the economies uh, in these countries, and, you know, for protecting national security and sovereignty. And I think this is the moment, right, that we need those sorts of investments while this extraordinary marine diversity has the capacity to recover, right, which wouldn't be forever. But I think right now the oceans have a great deal of resiliency if given some breathing room and if given some protection from overfishing, particularly by these deep sea Chinese fleets. Cindy Arnson. Sure. I would I would just say that it's not um, the the navies of the world are not strangers um, to environmental threats. Um, they are some of the first to have experienced the consequences of sea level rise and what that means for fleets that are posted, you know, um, at various ports around. And this has been true, I think, for at least uh, a decade, if not more. Um, so getting um Making the leap to marine protection, um, in my view, is a logical extension of the attention that's been paid to those who are charged with protecting waterways, um, you know, to the effects of climate change on, on rising sea levels. So it just seems very, very natural to me and appropriate, um, as well as welcome, as, as Benjamin was saying. Yeah, when you when you start connecting the dots here, there's no one who isn't affected by this, if not directly, at least indirectly. Well, we, we're down to our final seconds, but I, just a quick question that I want to ask it. You know, Chris, you apologize. No pun intended. I and I intend this pun when I say I want to talk about currents, but not ocean currents, political currents. One of the things we do on this program is sort of keep our fingers on the pulse of of the political waves as they uh, move around in the region. What Politically now, in recent elections, what has this done to the momentum regarding this issue? Has this created more momentum for ocean conservation or more roadblocks? And we just have time for some quick thoughts. 
Yeah, what, what you've seen in recent years is the election of you know leftist leaders throughout Latin America, but many of them kind of a new sort of leftist leader, not really focused on anti-Americanism, anti-imperialism, um, but rather focused on issues like environmental protection. And so that has helped bring focus to the Amazon and, and deforestation, but also to marine protection. The, the other thing you've seen in the United States is not only a president very focused on the environment, but an entire political system very focused on China which when it comes to marine protection has also drawn greater interest to the fight against illegal fishing. Okay. Well, that'll be our final word. We are out of time. Cindy, Andrew, Benjamin, Chris, thank you very much. We look forward to learning more from you in future episodes. And again, want to remind our, our viewers and our listeners, I should say, that those two events that we've talked about more than once are available at wilsoncenter.org if you just search past events. Uh, This episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Zoe Reed, with the assistance of Aldrin Ballesteros, sorry Aldrin, uh, Emma Brown, Sarah Doshi, and Patrizia Trocoli. We'll return in a couple weeks with our next episode. Until then, from all of us at the Center and at America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thank you for your time and interest. Well, at WilsonCenter.org, if you just search past events. Uh, This episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Zoe Reed, with the assistance of Aldrin Ballesteros, Emma Brown, Sarah Doshi, and Patrizia Trucoli. We'll return in a couple weeks with our next episode. Until then, from all of us at the Center and at America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thank you for your time and interest. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.